Om Jnana Timirandhasya Jnana Jnana Shalakaya Chakshurin Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Thank you for inviting me to this uh, prestigious institute of technology. I think this is this, you probably hear once before, huh? it's the second time I've spoken here. About 40 years ago, our guru, Srila Prabhupada, he delivered a lecture at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is widely considered the world's most prestigious technological institute. And he made the point that although there are so many universities all over the world, and that this one in particular is uh, so much... uh, valued and honored, but there is no university that teaches what is the difference between a living body and a dead body. Now you may think, well, that's that's a strange thing. Why would anyone want to teach that? But it's an inescapable fact, which is so obvious it hardly needs stating that every living body eventually becomes a dead body. And that all of us who are now in living bodies and all other living beings in living bodies do not want their bodies to become dead bodies. But despite All wishes to the contrary, every living body becomes a dead body. You could make a quiz like that, uh, a paradoxical question. What is both living and dead? The body. The living body, what we call a living body, it's only chemicals which don't have life. So it's not actually alive. So Srila Prabhupada made that point, which is actually the the first teaching of Bhagavad Gita, that the body always changes from boyhood to youth to old age. The child's body, did I hear a little squeak of a child? Yes, we have at least one baby here. So that gradually becomes, a baby's body becomes a child body, becomes a youth body, and many youth here now. And the attractive youth, in in youth the body is most attractive, it gradually becomes older, then very old, and then dead. But as Krishna points out in Bhagavad Gita that only the body is changing but the person remains the same so the constant factor, the person is an entity we can surmise that the person is different to the body because the person remains the same. So Srila Prabhupada pointed out that this most important factor of knowledge 
Who are we? Are we the body or something else? That's not taught in any university. There are depart, there are uh, departments of medicine, there are departments of philosophy, but they have no clear understanding of this most basic point that we are eternal living beings. We did not come into being with the birth of the body and we shall not cease to exist with the death of the body. Actually, you may know there's uh, one scientist who died just about two years ago, Dr. Ian Stevenson, you can Google him if you want, who spent his whole life scientifically researching reincarnation and found so much evidence of it as to establish it actually as a scientific fact. It would be under any other circumstances if you had so much scientific evidence uh, it would be accepted as a scientific fact. But unfortunately the scientific orthodoxy there are certain things they don't like to accept which means they're not very scientific. If one is actually scientific one should be neutral and open to all kinds of knowledge. I recently uh, came across the uh, Stephen Hawking's one of his, one of his latest books called A Briefer History of Time. His brief history of time is of course very famous. So A Briefer History of Time and on the back dust jacket it it's stated that uh, this edition is enhanced over the previous edition by the latest research. So you might think, well, that's better, isn't it? We had the brief history of time, which is considered a very valuable book, and now we have a briefer history of time, which is even better because it's enhanced by the latest research. But as our own Srila Prabhupada pointed out, the, the fact that you say that your knowledge is now better because you have the latest research means that previously what you call knowledge was not proper knowledge at all. And science, what they call knowledge in science, means that it's always subject to change. So if it's, if it's always subject to change, but according to the latest research or the latest theories, that means that what was considered to be knowledge wasn't actually knowledge at all. It was just what people at the time considered to be correct. Just like uh, when I was at school, in biology class, we were taught that the, cell, uh, the cells within our bodies are very simple organisms, and very soon scientists will be able to reproduce them in the laboratory. Which is uh, now, if, if you were to, at that time if I wrote in my examination that cells within our bodies are very simple organisms and soon scientists will be able to reproduce them, I would get full marks. Now if you wrote that, you'll get zero marks. 
So what was what was was that science at that time? Or is it science now to say something else? What is science? Science means what people who are called scientists consider to be correct. But that's not really science. In fact, studies by microbiologists have uh, given rise to the intelligent design movement. It's people who studied basically atheistic science. Darwinism has given rise to Neo-Darwinism has given rise to uh, what scientists consider to be uh, a platform for showing that, well, everything has, what we call life has arisen by chance from matter. But studies of microorganisms have shown that they're so complex that to consider that they've arisen from matter is, uh, statistically speaking, improbable to the level of uh, being considered zero probability. So, uh, I'm not a scientist, as you've probably discovered so far. I'm not talking in what you might call a very technical or scientific way. But, scientifically speaking, let's take this. This is something... There's nothing remarkable here. Is it, is anyone think that this is anything very remarkable? No. It's a very ordinary, commonplace thing. It's a plastic, uh, what do you call it? Cup with a uh, seal, aluminium foil seal with some water inside it. Very ordinary, commonplace thing. Okay. This, friends, I'd just like to speak to you scientifically now. This has come into being by chance. Will anyone believe it? Of course not. If I say that, well, there were various, uh, there were several earthquakes and a few explosions in Patiala, and at the end of it, there was this. Will anyone believe it? It's laughable. But then we see, if we see a little ant crawling here, which is uh, in complexity unlimitedly times more complex than this, and we say it's coming to being by chance, what to speak of all different bodies and all the interactions of nature, how is it possible? This is sufficiently complex that we cannot believe that it will come into being by chance. Although it's very simple compared to any organism, even even a, a germ. So the intelligent design movement has come up because scientists, scientists who were trained in basically atheistic science have considered that a much better hypothesis for the existence of everything that we are examining is that there is an intelligent designer. Now you may say, well, I I may say to you, well, can you prove that this was arranged and made by intelligent people? I I could say that, well, you have no proof that this didn't arise from matter. 
just by, by chance. I mean, you could say that in the course of history, given enough uh, scenarios, this could come into being by chance. I think even then no one would agree. But anyway, just for the sake of argument, you could say that. But it's a much more intelligent proposition to say that it didn't come into being by chance, but that someone or several people purposefully got the water from wherever, from the drain and filtered it or wherever they got it from, and got some oil out of the ground and processed it and made this plastic cup and more whatever they make this aluminium foil from, aluminium and some other things, and uh, put this seal on with some machines, all designed. There's actually a lot of intelligent work goes into making this. What do you think? If you think about it, getting the water, uh, getting the oil from the earth, processing the oil which requires a whole big factory, and then another factory to make this aluminium foil, and then to... So I'd said there are some added minerals and the water is ozonated. So there's some more things. And to put a label on it, to market it, to make a profit, to, th- to think how to market it and make a profit. There's, there's probably quite a few PhDs right behind this little thing here. And therefore it's a much better proposition to, we don't know. You and I, we don't know exactly. It maybe it just landed there by chance. It just came flying out of space, having, be, having been made in chance, by chance, on some other planet and arrived here. I doubt it. Possible. You could say it's possible, but it's a much more reasonable proposition to think that it was made by intelligent people with a particular purpose. The purpose is that, well, I'm supposed to drink it. Thank you very much, whoever put it there. Thank you for the kind thought. So, this intelligent design movement is hotly rejected by many It's a movement within science, but what may be called orthodox scientists hotly reject it because they don't want to accept the implications which that there there is a metaphysical cause. Within that brief, briefer history of time, I just opened it and looked at a few pages. I didn't read the whole book. I didn't read, hardly I read any of it. But within there, um, Stephen Hawking's makes his point that uh, we, uh, in our study of of the universe, we should accept Occam's razor, which, for those of you who may not know, Occam, uh, Occam's razor, there was way back in the medieval times, more than a thousand years ago, in Britain, uh, this philosophical proposition was put forth that we should accept as the best explanation of any phenomenon that which is most simple, 
straightforward and complete without any uh, egg without any extraneous unnecessary propositions added to it so then Stephen Hawking went on to say that therefore we don't accept any metaphysical within science we don't accept metaphysical propositions we only accept that which we can perceive with our senses but how does that follow how does it follow that uh, the best explanation is that which we that which springs from that which we can perceive is that the best explanation of everything or is it a better explanation just like the whole idea that uh, within the scientific orthodoxy that uh, well it's an unwritten or unspoken axiom that we don't accept that there's any god or any anything spiritual because we can't perceive anything spiritual they say we cannot we, we cannot measure we can measure matter we can measure the specific density of water we can measure distance both from at the nano level to the universal level we can measure speed we can measure brain waves uh so we have so many instruments by which we can measure various things and perceive them in this way but we cannot perceive spirit we cannot measure spirit well the very nature of spirit is that it's a, of a different category to matter so how can we expect to to say that we cannot perceive spirit by material means only serves to underline the fact which is the very basis of understanding or what is the meaning of spiritual is that is non-material so to say that we cannot perceive anything spiritual by material means is it's a self-defeating statement so as i said this uh, dr ian stevenson he did vast research throughout his life uh, which scientifically establishes that there is reincarnation he would find especially young children throughout the world who would speak of their previous life and uh dr stevenson would go and investigate and find out uh, how a child born in one place is speaking an obscure dialect from another place and they they know all the intimate details of a, of another family in which they were previously a member and he scientifically uh gave in on many many hundreds and thousands of cases which he documented he uh he gave all other possibilities such as that someone has made it up or the child is imagining but in cases like that where a child is born and they know some obscure they can speak the ob some obscure dialect of uh that that's spoken some hundreds of miles away and they know intimate family details which are only known within a certain family uh there in such cases the uh the only possible explanation is that the child was previously born in that family so uh but the, the scientific orthodoxy they 
they don't like to accept this because they're not scientific, they're biased. However, uh, it's inevitable that uh, in course of time these ideas, they're infiltrating society. Despite the uh, orthodox orthodox educational system, uh, gradually people everywhere all over the world are coming to accept things which previously they wouldn't accept at all. Just like, for instance, uh, one generation ago in the Western world, uh, any ideas of naturopathy or yoga, uh, they they were outside the purview of what was considered respectable medicine. But nowadays it's quite normal and accepted for doctors in the West to, uh, for instance, to tell their patients to do some meditation or to take a vegetarian diet for their health, which previously they they would not, they wouldn't dare to do because they would they could be censured by the American Medical Association. So gradually, because these ideas have validity, they're gradually being accepted, uh, even in the Western world. Now, I was just speaking about the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which, being the most prestigious institution of its kind throughout the world, you might think it's the most materialistic. You could say in some ways it's the capital of materialism. Uh, It's situated in Boston, in Massachusetts, where there's also Harvard University, and just a short distance from there, uh, from Boston, is Yale University. So these are the bastions of modern, secular, uh, basically atheistic education. Both Yale and Harvard and all the great universities of the West Oxford, Cambridge, Sorbonne, they started off as theistic institutions, but they gradually became atheistic. Uh, Now, you may know that the devotees of ISKCON all over the world distribute these books, Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, and in America especially, they're finding that the best place to distribute these books are on university campuses. I was just in Boston just just over a week ago. I just came from there. And the devotees there told me that the the best place for distributing these books, like Bhagavad Gita, is on the MIT campus, Massachusetts Institution of Technology. And you would think, well, that would be the worst place because the people there, they must be the most materialistic but uh, one devotee who is distributing the books there told me that we just tell the, we tell the students and the faculty members uh, that these books will help you to overcome stress that's all you have to say and immediately they want to buy the book because they're suffering so much the MIT has the highest rate of suicide of any university in the whole of America. They're under so much stress, so much pressure. 
And uh, I suspect that the stress may also come from the the whole dichotomy of life that students in America face today in as much as they're being trained in a in a whole world view which increasingly they feel difficult to subscribe to an, an atheistic mechanistic worldview in which uh, it's unspoken but the message is very clear that the uh, the so-called scientific outlook is that we are just some kind of machines there's there's no god there's nothing spiritual uh, but increasingly uh, people are finding that this whole mechanistic outlook is completely unsatisfying and although america is supposed to be the most not supposed to be it definitely is the materially the most advanced country in the world it's definitely the most powerful still despite the fact that it's going down fast uh it's still the most pow- materially the most powerful country in the world but uh there are tremendous social problems there 70% of people throughout their life seek psychiatric help that means everyone is mentally suffering or if you want to put it more bluntly 70% of the people are crazy uh and maybe the 30% they're too crazy to even think of going to a psychiatrist or they can't afford it because uh if you don't have psychiatric problems before you go to the psychiatrist by the time he's looted you of all your money you'll definitely have more stress and tension from losing all your money to see a doctor in america is uh, is to lose all your money just an appointment because in fact there are many people they come to india from america because by the time they're fl- for medical treatment because by the time you fly in and fly out and have your treatment you still save so much money so uh practically speaking we can say that th- this totally mechanistic world view the idea that man is nothing but chemicals uh, practically speaking at this at the social level it has failed it has failed to bring in peace to human society has failed to bring in direction to human society tremendous technology has been developed way back in the t- in the days of Ronald Reagan they were boasting that with our satellites we can read the writing on a coin that falls on a street in Moscow they have tremendous technology what are they using it for to produce cartoons mickey mouse uh, the, the the internet what is the biggest business on the internet pornography for all their tremendous technology uh, most people are more interested in frivolous pursuits such as uh, here in india it's bollywood in america it's hollywood sports pornography frivolous things so uh, is spirituality relevant today definitely it is of course it is why because people today suffer from the same problems that people in all ages have suffered 
and more so in the modern age, where the more that materialism is promoted, the more that people suffer. What is the reason for taking to spiritual life or making spiritual inquiry? The very fact that we as living beings are not simply combinations of chemicals. This dear glass of water, which we're using as a sample here, uh, whatever you do to it, you can hammer it, you can throw it in a fire, you can call it all names. I don't know Punjabi swear words, but if you like, you can call it all the worst names you like. In any la- it won't react. It, if you if you insult this and say you're the worst looking glass of water I ever saw in my life, there won't be any reaction. Why? Because there's no life there. But we are living beings with emotions, feelings, desires, likes, and dislikes. We are categorically different from matter. We are different to the body. The body is matter. It will all disintegrate at some point. But we are living beings. And we suffer within this world. And in the modern age, people are suffering more than ever because of the gross materialism. The more materialism there is, the more people's aspirations are directed toward simply enjoyment of the body, the more that people suffer. This is the general idea in the material world in all ages and all places, especially promoted at the present time, that if we have bodily pleasure, then we will be happy. If we have money, we will be happy. But it's not a fact. It is not a fact that simply by having a comfortable chair to sit in, or that by having lots of money, we will be happy. And it is a fact that however much money we have, however much technology we have, we still have to suffer. Janma mrityu jaravi adhi duk, birth, death, old age and disease. So, a spiritual inquiry is as relevant today as it has ever, as it has ever been. Because for all our technology, for all our fancy medical machines, we all still have to die. And what happens after that? Well, according to science, what they call science, they can't prove it, but they say, well, Nothing happens. You're just dead, finished. But according to the law of conservation of energy, we should continue to exist because I am not this body. This body is just like a covering, just like the cloth covers the body. The body covers the soul. So this, the body changes the soul changes, the soul changes, stays the same. So when the body dies, the soul continues to exist. Because we are not catering to the needs of the soul, we are suffering more in this materialistic age. Just like 
If you have a bird in a cage and you polish the cage but you don't feed the bird, that is foolishness. So in the same way we're so busy looking after the body and trying to make it strong and healthy and beautiful. But the spirit soul, the jiva, the atma, we're not caring for that and therefore we are suffering. So spirituality is always always relevant and however much so-called scientific advancement is made, it always will be relevant because we are spiritual beings. We have needs beyond the body. We have needs beyond making a comfortable situation in this world. We are eternal living beings. We have eternal needs. Simply satisfying the body cannot satisfy us, the person. And that we practically see. There are so many rich people in this world. There are so many famous people in this world. There are so many beautiful people in this world. But that doesn't bring happiness. We may think, if I was rich, I would be happy. It's it's just an illusion. It is not at all true that those who are rich are happy. Generally, they suffer more anxiety than others. So, spiritualism or understanding who am I? What is my eternal nature? How can I be actually happy? These are the really important questions of life. And in this way, uh, we can understand that those who inquire into these subject matters, they are more intelligent than Stephen Hawking or Albert Einstein, who are busy studying matter But the really important questions they have neglected. It's just the same thing. It's just like someone is busy improving the cage. If you have a bird in a cage and you're so busy improving, always improving the cage, but you don't feed the bird, well, that is foolishness. So, uh, so-called modern science is so busy studying this material world, but who are we as living beings? as spiritual living beings, they've neglected that question. So actual intelligence means to apply one's intelligence to that which is most important. What is most important? What is most important is who we are, how we can be fully satisfied. These questions have to be answered on the spiritual platform. So that knowledge is there in Bhagavad Gita and that is timeless because however much the world changes, however much scientists and technologists manipulate matter, the fact is that as spiritual beings we have spiritual needs. We need Love, we have desires, we have aspirations, we have fear. Who are we? This question uh, cannot be answered simply by studying genetic codes. It doesn't tell us who we are. It might, studying supposed genetic codes might give some information of how the complex covering of the jivatma called the body 
has been fashioned by material nature. Just like this, uh, you can study the tailoring of the cloth and you can see how it's been made so you can study genetic codes or, or uh, neuropsychology and come to some conclusions about the complex covering of the soul. But one cannot understand the soul. One has to, by simply material means, one has to adopt the spiritual means to do so. So this is an eternal science, that which is given in Bhagavad Gita. Krishna begins by teaching the difference between spirit and matter. This very point, 40 years ago, Srila Prabhupada pointed out that the scientists and technologists, they are so busy studying matter, but they do not know the difference between matter and spirit, and therefore they are neglecting the most important subject, and saying that simply studying matter, that's it, that's education, that's everything finished. But who are we? What happens after the death of the body? How can we get free from suffering? This is the really big question. It's not whether we, we can go to Mars and go beyond Mars. What will we do if we go to Mars? Still we have to suffer. Birth, death, old age and disease. These are the really important questions. They are answered in Bhagavad Gita. So that is required for everyone. As students at MIT are discovering that the knowledge of Bhagavad Gita, which teaches who is supreme, Krishna is supreme, who are we? We are part and parcel of Krishna. We are his eternal servants. That this knowledge gives them the satisfaction that they crave, lacking which uh, they're suffering, they're actually suffering so much that they have the highest rate of suicide on any campus in North America. Which is very sad if you think about it because uh, most brilliant minds from all over the world are going there to study. So the, the, the very cream of a whole generation all over the world, but they're just being guided in such a way that they feel unhappiness. Why should that be? They have so much intelligence, uh, so much desire to study and understand but for lack of proper guidance to answer their deepest questions, so many of them are suffering from stress, so many are committing suicide. So uh, this Krishna Conscious Movement is meant to give that knowledge which is, will not just simply help us to manipulate so that we can genetically modify some more foods or uh, discover some medicines to treat the patients who are suffering from the uh, unforeseen effects of genetically modified foods 
or to make more medicines to counteract the effects of the medicines that we made for treating the people who were suffering from the unforeseen effects of genetically modified food and in this way say that we're making scientific progress. But uh, the teachings of Bhagavad Gita, they give us that scientific knowledge, actually scientific, we'll find this word in Bhagavad Gita, again and again, science, by which we can be fully satisfied, and we can know everything. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, Jnanam teham savigyanam midam vaksham yasheshataha yaj gyatva neha bhuyo nyaj gyata vyamavasishyate. Krishna says, I will now explain to you that jnana and vijnana, that knowledge and vijnana, that word is generally used for science, by knowing which there will be nothing more left to be known. You'll know everything. So what does that mean that we can know everything? Can we really know everything? Yes, we can know everything by this science of spiritual knowledge. That doesn't mean that we know every detail. That doesn't mean that by studying Bhagavad Gita that we can know uh, how many lepers there are in India. Just we can, or we can know uh, how many hairs are there on the prime minister's head. It's it's not that we'll know everything in in every single fact about everything in the world, but we'll need, we'll know everything that we need to know. So Krishna goes on to explain that there is material energy, He describes material energy as being uh, consisting of eight elements, which are Krishna's separated material energy. You may say, well, eight elements, uh, but there are so many more. When I was at school, there were how many elements? Hundred can't even remember. Hundred four. Now there's more than hundred and twenty. So, again, if I give the answer that I gave when I was at school, now they now they've discovered some more elements. Of course, the problem with the new elements they discovered is that they they don't exist in nature, and even if you can make them, they don't last. Anyway, uh, we have. Uh, far more than eight elements in the periodic table. But the, uh, the Vedic understanding of elements is different to that which is given in the periodic table. They're, the earth, water, fire, air, ether. They're the five gross elements. And then mind, intelligence, and ahankar, false ego. They are the three subtle elements. So this is, a, it's a different, under, a different approach altogether. Just like we say uh, earth, the earth element. So that covers everything such as wood, metal, everything that's solid. Water covers everything that's liquid. In other words, they're categories. Air, earth, water, uh, fire that covers electricity also. Uh, Air that covers all different kinds of gases. So in this way, the uh, the Vedic 
classification is there of the various elements. What is matter? So matter is described, and then Krishna goes on to describe aparayamitastranyang prakritiyang me vidiparam jiva bhutang mahabaho yayedam dharyate jagat. Krishna explains that there is another kind of energy altogether. Apart from the gross material energy, there is this spiritual energy, which is the spiritual spark in every, what we would call, organic entity. That which, that which gives life, that is the jiva or the atma. So, uh, that is a different kind of energy altogether, that is the spiritual energy. And Krishna goes on to explain how we as conscious living beings, the, the jiva, in contradistinction to matter, which is unconscious, as conscious living beings, uh, we suffer or enjoy in this material world according to our actions. If we perform good actions, we get a good result. If we perform bad actions, we get a bad result. And this is a very simple thing to understand. Uh, that for every action, there is a reaction. And it's true on the uh, spiritual level, also, or the metaphysical level. But that as long as we are in this material world, we uh, have to suffer within it, because that is the nature of the material world. But as spiritual living beings, our nature is to be uh, satyadananda, eternal, conscious, and blissful, but that we have to come to the spiritual platform. Uh, that means the platform beyond trying to enjoy matter. Then we can come to the position of eternality, full consciousness, and full bliss. So it's actually very simple to understand. The teachings of Bhagavad Gita, they're not at all difficult to understand. Uh, in fact, you could say science in many ways is more complex because we have to study so many energies in so much complexity. But... Uh, Studying all these points in their various complexities, that may help us to produce microphones and even disposable cups filled with water. Uh, but that doesn't satisfy the need of our soul, of who we are. So who we are is very easy to understand. We are distinct from matter. We have needs other than material needs. By science we might be able to make life more comfortable. Might be able to. That's also disputable. If human society has actually been uh, improved by so much uh, upheaval of the whole earth and the whole ecosystem and the whole uh, traditional social systems and traditional educational systems, it's highly disputable whether or not hu the human society has actually benefited from this. But uh, 
even if we say that science can, and can make our life more comfortable, still the fact remains that we are basically uncomfortable within this whole material situation. That however comfortable the seat we may sit in may be, we can't sit in it forever. We have to get, we are booted out. Material nature forces us to leave this body. And we are forced to die, to grow old and die again and again and again. So uh, spiritual knowledge is certainly as relevant today as it ever was. And it always will be relevant because materialism in and of itself cannot satisfy us. It never can satisfy us. The whole propaganda that we can be satisfied simply by the progress of science and getting money is a kind of propaganda that works against our real self-interest. Our real self-interest is to understand who we are actually, beyond simply a body that is destined to die. Our real self-interest is in understanding uh, the spiritual techniques by which we can be fully satisfied in all respects. And we practically see that people who take to Krishna consciousness, that they actually become happy. The face is the index of the mind. In our Krishna consciousness movement, we proscribe illicit sex, meat-eating, gambling, intoxication of all kinds. And you may think, well, well, what's left to life? If, there's no, if, the, if all these things are not allowed, then where is their pleasure? And on top of that, we don't advise our followers to watch TV, go to cinemas, go to restaurants. And you may think, well, what is there left to life? What are, what are we doing then? But the fact is that by avoiding these grossly material activities and using the time for chanting Hare Krishna, which is the powerful spiritual technique for reviving our dormant, blissful spiritual consciousness, that people actually become happy. We can see that... that it's visible in people's faces and they will all attest to this that by stopping, by withdrawing from the endeavor to enjoy ourselves on the sensual platform and by applying ourselves to surrender to Krishna on the spiritual platform we actually become happy. Why is that? Because it is the spiritual scientific fact that as eternal living beings we have an eternal spiritual relationship with Krishna. And that by chanting Hare Krishna and cultivating Krishna consciousness, we revive that eternal spiritual relationship, which is a, a relationship of bliss. That is our actual nature. And that starts to revive by chanting Hare Krishna. And by engaging in sensual activities, that actually covers our spiritual nature more and more and more so that we become miserable and we get the opposite effect of what we desire. We desire that by going to movies, by getting money, by 
having a prestigious job, whatever that means. I don't know how a job can be prestigious, but there's some idea like that, that if you're working, if you earn lots of money, that's prestigious. But the whole idea of working for someone else, other than Krishna, where's the fun in that at all? So all these ideas that you will become happy by doing so, no, no, it's not a fact. Not a fact. Actual happiness must be, can only be, on the spiritual platform. That is our constitutional position. Just like a fish, if you take it out of water and give, say, now dear fish, we're going to give you a million dollars a month. You can spend it in any way you like. Or we'll give you the most beautiful, shapely female fish for you to enjoy. But whatever you give the fish, as long as he's out of water, he has to, he can only suffer. Even if he's given all paraphernalia for, for, for enjoyment. So in the same way, as long as we are disconnected from Krishna, we're outside the atmosphere, which is our constitutional position, then nothing can actually satisfy us. So this is the simple, straightforward science of Krishna consciousness delineated in Bhagavad Gita. Of course, there are many more details, and it's not at all that Vedic knowledge is simplistic. In fact, it is by far the most sophisticated knowledge in all respects. The Vedic knowledge gives knowledge of all categories of human endeavor. But uh, the basic understanding of who we are, the spiritual science, it's very easy to understand and can be explained even to children. Unfortunately, we've created a just like a smokescreen in the modern age of tremendous amounts of information. We're not sure how much of it's actually correct, but there's huge amounts of information which uh, covers the real subject that we really need to know, the fact of who we are. We are eternal spiritual beings. The body is temporary. We are eternal. We have our eternal relationship with Krishna. So this is relevant. If you don't believe me, go and ask them at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which... uh, it's supposed to be the world's most prestigious institute of technology where students and faculty are eagerly uh, taking the books given by Srila Prabhupada, given by the ISKCON International Society for Krishna Consciousness because they know that science and technology in itself is not satisfying us. We need spiritual knowledge. So, Hare Krishna, that's all I'm going to say for now. And I invite Dr. Keshavanand, who's actually studied science, which I haven't, I must admit. Uh, Although that's not at all a disqualification for understanding the most important thing that we need to know. Uh, But generally those who are trained in science and technology, they have this feeling that We are superior to others who have not studied. So 
let him speak and uh, he studied both sides so he can satisfy you better in that respect thank you very much for listening patiently Hare Krishna Uh, well there are many differences one major difference um, in what are called the Abrahamic traditions that means uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism these three religions they call the Abrahamic religions because they all uh, claim to have as their forefather Abraham so what we see in I'm not so very, very much familiar with Judaism and it's a much smaller religion um, but what we see in the Islamic and Christian traditions based on their books is the idea that you should just believe this what is written in the Bible or the Quran you just have to believe it unquestioningly and blind faith is considered a, the, the, the prime religious virtue is considered to be just you believe what is in the book without questioning it and that is just like in Christianity it is the uh, very symptom of a Christian that you believe that God sent his only begotten son to redeem us from all our sins and if you just believe that then you are saved if not you have to burn in hell forever whereas the approach in the Gita is very different in the Gita Krishna instructs Arjuna and tries to get Arjuna to understand intelligently Krishna doesn't say to Arjuna well you just believe what I say but Krishna addresses Arjuna instructs him and at every point Arjuna is welcome to Arjuna does ask questions Arjuna expresses doubts Krishna explains at the end of Bhagavad Gita uh, Krishna asks Arjuna have you understood what everything that's now have you understood everything and uh, Arjuna answers yes nashtomo hasmriti labdha tvat prasada maya chuta sitosmi gatasandeha Arjuna says, yes, now my illusion is dispelled. I have regained my clear consciousness, my clear understanding. By your mercy, Achuta, Achuta means one who is never in illusion, he never falls into illusion. Uh, all my doubts are gone and I am now ready to do what you say. So, Krishna doesn't say, you just do what I say. He's first of all convinces Arjuna that yes, by, by his intelligence Arjuna understands and therefore he's ready to do what Krishna says rather that well you just do what you're told without uh, understanding and traditionally in the Abrahamic traditions uh, questioning and philosophy among the laymen they were discouraged uh, you may know that when the Bible was first printed that the church of Rome they, they literally burned people to death for printing Bibles because they wanted they didn't want that people would read the Bible they wanted that only the priests will explain it 
Because they thought if they read the Bible, they'll get too many doubts in their heads. So uh, among students of the Bible in the Western world, there are broadly two categories. There are those who are literal believers. And based on that, they say... there, There are many people in the world who are supposed to be highly educated, who believe that God created the world... Uh, in six that was six thousand years ago, and they say it. So when they're confronted with what is supposed to be scientific evidence of dinosaurs, they say, "Well, God put dinosaur fossils just to test our faith." Um, there are another category of Bible students, Bible scholars who uh, recognize that the dogmatism of thinking, for instance, that, the, that the, uh, the first six books of the Bible are all written by one person, traditionally that's ascribed to Moses, it cannot be true because there are such different styles and there are so many contradictory things. And basically they come to the conclusion that they don't believe in the Bible. Whereas the Vedas and the Vedic knowledge can withstand such scrutiny because they address uh, our intelligence rather than trying to constrict our intelligence into some blind faith. Which is why uh, many, one of the reasons why many people in the Western world are preferring to take up um, Vedic knowledge because it's just so, it's universal, it's, uh, it covers all areas, and it satisfies the intelligence. In a scientific age, the blind dogmatism of you just, that you just have to believe that blind faith is considered a virtue, even in such, even for such absurd propositions that the world was created by God only 6,000 years ago. But people believe it, why? Because it's in the Bible. And when I ask people that why, sh- well, you say I should believe in the Bible or otherwise I go to hell, but Muslims say I should believe in the Quran and if I don't believe that I'll go to hell, what am I supposed to do? There's no intelligent way that I can understand which one is correct. And within, of course, there are divisions also, within Christian religion, Catholic, Protestants, Orthodox, and all kinds of things. And then uh, within Islam, there's Shia and Sunni. Uh, I was raised in a Catholic family in which I was told that if you don't believe in the Pope, you go to hell. And the Protestant families, you're taught if you do believe in the Pope, you go to hell. So I was wondering, what shall I do? You know, I can't work it out. I can't understand which one's correct. So what I should do, if there's a Catholic church on one side of the road and a Protestant church on the other, I'll stand in the middle and when God comes, I'll see which side he goes on, rush to that side, and then I'll be saved from hell. It's not, it doesn't appeal to the intelligence whatsoever, whereas the Vedic instruction is directed at the intelligence. So that is a very major difference. Unfortunately, uh, the people of the West who, are, who have called other civilizations barbaric, practically their civilization is barbaric. There's, it's, an, it's a civilization of killing, killing civilization. I, I mean, if we just... St- I recently, I mean, I, 
My, as you have asked, I'm answering in this way. Um, I'm not saying that everything in Christianity is bad or every, but um, I did read a thick book called The History of Christianity, and I thought that in it there'd be discussions of different philosophical principles, but practically it was just a history of killing, 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 and killing. How Catholics have killed Protestants, Protestants have killed Catholics, Christians have fought against Muslims, uh, horrible torture, how Christianity was spread in Goa by horrible torture that you have to accept Christianity or, and, and then otherwise you're killed, children killed in front of their parents uh, with the parents' eyelids are cut off so that they, can't, they cannot close their eyes while they're seeing their children slaughtered. Horrible things in the name of God which leads many people in the Western world to become atheists. They think, well, if this, is what, if this is what's coming from God, it's better not to believe in any God. So, uh, there are, it's to say that all religions are the same is, is uh, maybe true in the essence, but in the, in the practical uh, application, actually the Vedic knowledge is much more advanced, uh, it's it's much more uh, satisfying. It doesn't demand blind following. It doesn't promote hatred of those who do not follow your path, which is very prominent in the, this idea of uh, kafirs or pagans, heathens that who deserve to be killed is not there in the Vedic culture. So. Uh, Myself, I came to the Vedic culture not because I wanted to become a Hindu, and I don't think I'm a Hindu, which is a term that you won't find in the Vedic knowledge. The word Hindu is a relatively modern term. But because I wanted to find out what is the highest knowledge, what is the actual purpose of life. And there were so many questions which couldn't be answered in the tradition that I was raised in, which were thoroughly and satisfyingly answered in the Vedic tradition, which is why I've taken to it. So there are very great differences. It's not all the same. Yeah, anything else? Yeah, someone else has a question then? Lord Shiva, what? Sorry? Lord Shiva was an alien. If I say that, it was right. Well, alien is a term that means as someone who's different, in different category from a different place. And it's generally used in a derogatory way in English. I don't know how it's understood in Indian English, but alien just uh, sometimes people coming from other countries into America, they may be called aliens. So Lord Shiva, he's def definitely in a different category to us, but he's in a superior category to us. 
Alien? What do you mean by alien? You mean from other planets? Yeah, well, that's a, that. There are there there that there are living beings on other planets is described in the Vedic literature, which is uh, again, which makes it much more satisfactory than the than the Abrahamic traditions. According to the Abrahamic traditions, God created the universe and put some humans there, and the few who believe in whatever they're teaching. Uh, they get saved by God and the rest all go to hell forever and then it's all finished. And there's only life on earth according to them. But the Vedic tradition, which makes, according to their theology, God may be out of some whim or something created all these human beings out in some blip in time and then the ones he likes, he saves, and the rest he just burns in hells forever. And then the universe is finished and it's all over. And the whole thing, in, in terms of eternity, the whole thing just happens like that. Whereas the Vedic knowledge says that there are cycles of time. There is creation of the universe, there is destruction of the universe. And then again there's creation. And the jivas within the universe... Uh, they enter into the body of Vishnu during the time of pralai, during the time after the annihilation. Then again they come out. Uh, and that the different ha- planets are inhabited. There's no explanation in the biblical tradition as to why uh, there are different planets in the universe. What, there are so many stars. What are they for? Just so that we can look at them? Why? Why are they all there? These are reason. These are reason. These uh, this lac- massive lacuna of knowledge is one reason why people who consider themselves scientists tend to be atheists because the explanations or lack of them given by people who claim to believe in God either they give some explanation which is completely absurd, just like dinosaur bones were put there by God to test our faith in the Bible. Or they don't have any explanation whatsoever. Whereas the Vedic literature says, Yesya Prabha Prabhavato Jagadanda Koti Kotishvashesha Vasudhadi Vibhutin Hindam Tad Brahma Nishkalam Anantam Ashesha Bhutam Govinda Madhi Purusham Tamahamajami That Govinda who Krishna, who is the original transcendental person who we should worship, he has created, or rather by through his agency, he has created so many situations in the universe which different living beings, they uh, take birth in according to their karmic reactions. And there are different features within different planets which people, they take birth in according to their karma. Just like we see that uh, within this earth there are different countries with different cultures and people have different characteristics. Now why is someone born in India, in Punjab, in a middle class family and someone else is born in Italy uh, with a different mentality and some difference of physical features also? 
So people are born in different situations according to the karmic situation that they acquired in a previous life. And you may be born in a different planet altogether. Uh, where there are certain planets where the inhabitants, they have what... On this planet, uh, the yogis, they can acquire siddhis, such as being able to vanish, such as being able to read others' minds, such as being able to transfer themselves immediately from one place to another, such as being able to take something. You can just materialize something in your hand. That means you take it from somewhere else. So these are yogic siddhis. You can fly in the sky. But on the siddhaloka, those who are born there, they automatically have that by by their karmic reactions. Uh, those who are born on Gandharvaloka, they're expert musicians. Just like we see on this planet, Mozart is considered the greatest musician of the West, in, in the history of the Western world. At the age of four, he started composing and he could play the violin expertly. There was, we understand that this ability he had was from a previous life. He must have been a great Gandharva in his previous life. So the Vedic knowledge says that all the planets are inhabited. Now we may say, well, we can't see people uh, on different planets, but that is that we cannot see doesn't mean that they don't exist. Because uh, living beings on other planets, if they have bodies composed mostly of, of the ether, akash element, we won't be able to see that so, yes, all the planets are inhabited. Uh, Lord Shiva, he is uh, greatest living being in the universe. Vishnu is the greatest living being. He is beyond the universe. He's also within it, but his mulastan, uh, or his own abode, is beyond the universe. So Lord Shiva is called Parameshvara. We may say, well, we're Krishna devotees. Why are we saying Shiva is Parameshvara? That is true within this universe. And beyond all the universes, Vishnu is Parameshvara. So yes, uh, Lord Shiva, he, certainly he exists. He has his own planet. He's also imminent within every living being. He exists both in his own place and everywhere also. So by science you can't understand that. Well, one of the greatest uh, teachings of the Vedas which helps us to enter into spiritual knowledge is one of the most important things to help us understand everything is that we can't understand everything according to our very limited way of thinking. So for us, we can only be in one place at one time. But for great personalities, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Vishnu, for Lord Shiva, they can, they have their own personal existence in one place and they're simultaneously everywhere and can see everything. And when you pray to Krishna or Shiva, you are here, they can hear you because they're here also. And they respond also, isn't it? 
If they were not present, then they couldn't respond. But they do respond. Yes, please. If you have uh, questions that you want to specifically address to myself or Keshavanan, then please inform us accordingly. Hare Krishna, that's the answer. <laughs> that's it. No more questions. All questions are answered. <laughs> when we stop, when, when, when we don't have any more doubts, then we just chant Hare Krishna. That's all. We go on and go on and thinking, thinking, thinking. I'll come to your question. But in, in Gita, Krishna says, Bahunam Janmana Amante, Jnanavan Mam Prapadite, Vasudeva Sarvamiti, Samahatna Sudur Labaha. That after many, many births of trying to understand, when you actually understand, then you surrender to Krishna. Understanding that Krishna is all in all. But such persons are very rare. Because in this world, most people, they're either trying to enjoy this world, or they're trying to understand it. But when we understand that there's nothing to enjoy in this world, that we are not the enjoyer, we are meant for serving Krishna, we can be happy by serving Him. And when we stop trying to work everything out and trying to understand everything, and understand that we're too small to understand everything, and we just surrender to Krishna, who actually understands everything, then everything is perfect. Then we chant Hare Krishna. Anyway, what's your question? So as we say in case of medicine that the complete medicine consists of two parts, the diagnosis part and then the therapy part. Similarly, sir, in your talk, you talked about the diagnosis part, but then you stopped without giving us the remedy which okay. you have given right now. Hare Krishna. So what is the therapy? That's the answer, Hare Krishna. <laughs> Actually, in modern medicine, there's diagnosis and therapy. But they miss a huge part by which if, we, if they actually taught this, we wouldn't need so much diagnosis and therapy. And that is uh, how to live in such a way that we don't get sick. Preventive medicine. How? I mean, uh, I lived for many years in Bangladesh, and I traveled in the villages in the 1980s. Uh, there was no electricity. I was travel. I traveled for weeks without seeing electricity. Sometimes people had a torch if there was a shop which sold a battery. You could have a, a battery torch, but mostly the torch was by this bati. This that's the, the uh, Kerosene lamp. Um, doctor, roads, in many places there are no roads, no cars, no one ever seen a car. There were no doctors or modern medicine. There were fakirs who were cured by mantra. Uh, I personally got cured from, uh, my knee was so stiff I couldn't bend it. So some illiterate village women 
came along and got some mustard oil, said some mantras on it, rubbed it on my joints and blew three times. It was cured. People don't believe this, but I had personal experience. So, uh, there was treatment like that, fakirs, but much of the medicine was prevented. There are so many things which people knew. Just like when when Chaitra Mas comes in, stop eating Deedgur. Deedgur is much produced in Bangladesh, very, very tasty. Don't eat it anymore, it's too hot. The season has changed, it's become too hot. Uh, don't drink coconut water after sunset. And just basic things which everyone knows. Don't bathe after eating. You have to wait for it to digest. So just village, you could say folklore. But it works. And you don't need to see doctors. Because uh, it's just the culture that people, there's the preventive medicine. So... We need a lot of diagnosis in the modern age, spiritually also, because there's no spiritual culture. There's no spiritual teaching. Along with the folklore of don't eat Deidgur from the first day of Chaitra, there's the spiritual law, L-O-R-E, or L-A-W, as you like. Law, L-O-R-E means inherent culture. There's the spiritual culture or the understanding that human life is not meant simply for eating, sleeping, watching movies, uh, passing stool and then dying. That life has a sublime purpose. And in fact, uh, the London School of Economics, which you may know is the most prestigious institute of its kind in the world, they were the first to do, and subsequently there have been many, what they called a world happiness survey. And they interviewed people all over the world and found out which people are most happy. Bangladesh came number one. And I understand why is that? Because people are deeply religious. There's, you won't find any atheists in Bangladesh. It, it, it might be, uh, it would be considered socially reprehensible to be, a, to be an atheist. People have deep faith in God. You may say that they're not very educated. But uh, actually this is the subject of one of my books, in discussing the, my experiences there. How a Although people may not be very cultured and sophisticated in modern terms, just like I say, I didn't see, I'd go for weeks without electricity. Sometimes you'd say there were places with electricity and there'd be a, a, this uh, line, this tar for electricity. The only thing was that the electricity never came in it. <laughs> so, or it would come like sporadically for one hour a day at too low a voltage to, to light, the, the light would be beyond very dimly, so something like this. Nowadays things have changed. There's electricity in every village, there's TVs in every village, and the culture has gone down. The, the spiritual culture has gone down. 
But uh, there's a very deep understanding, whether Christian, Muslim, or Hindu, or whatever, mostly Muslims, many Hindus also, that life is not meant simply for living, but the central point of life is God. So the therapy, it's right there in that book that you're holding. It's called The Beginner's Guide to Krishna's Consciousness. Hindi me kya balte Krishna bhakti prabodhan. We have to have spiritual culture. We have to have spiritual practices. What is this so-called sophisticated life where you get up as late as you can in the morning and you might remember to brush your teeth in the winter, maybe you may not even bathe, and just uh, run, take some food, what they call food is something processed in a factory. There's, in the West especially, what they call food, it's horrible. Some bread wrapped in plastic, two, three days old, and all full of chemicals and artificial hormones. And people, they, they keep food in the meat in the freezer like some arctic bear or something and then they heat it up in the microwave what is this so called they rush off to work and they, 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 they're always telling their wife I love you I love you they have to say it three times a day at least I love you I love you I love you and then they divorce them anyway what is this horrible civilization it's not civilization at all it's, it's actually disgusting. It's, it's subhuman. Where people, they, after passing their yesterday's meal out the other side, they just smear their backside with some paper, pull up their pants, and they might remember to wash their hand, and then they just go, go on with their work. They, they, then they'll be eating something. Uh, no, no knowledge of God. Even if they have some religion, it's just some... They have no knowledge of who is actually God. What is our relationship with Him? It's barbaric. So, uh, the therapy is the same as the preventive, the preventive measure. If you, the preventive measure from falling down into total ignorance is to chant Hare Krishna. And if we are in total ignorance, which unfortunately people in India more and more in the modern age are, and they think it's becoming advanced to give up their uh, tremendous culture, by far the most, uh, spiritually by far the most developed in the whole world. I mean, what is considered philosophy in the Western world they don't even come to the point of understanding. They don't even ask the question, what is the difference between life and matter? They never even ask that question. What kind of, what kind of philosophers are they? The very first teaching of Bhagavad Gita distinguishes the soul from matter. And they never even ask that question. Recently, some of our devotees of ISKCON, they, they had a several day, uh, what's that called, consortium with uh, several of the Christians from all big universities, Harvard University, Oxford University, and the subject they wanted to discuss was, what is the soul? 
And what the Christians could come up with is that after 2,000 years, we don't know. We're still working on that. And that's the first point that is mentioned in Bhagavad Gita on which the, the base, all the spiritual life, all spiritual knowledge is developed. How can you have spiritual knowledge if you don't even know what spirit is? They don't know. And therefore they have so, therefore they need blind faith. So, uh, what is required is that people understand spiritual knowledge and then act on it. The action is bhakti, and that is chanting Hare Krishna, uh, understanding the teachings of Bhagavad Gita, offering our food to Krishna, taking only food offered to Krishna, uh, visiting the holy places, associating with saintly persons, these are all the activities of bhakti. They are described in brief, very practical, clear understanding of how to practice in that book there, that uh, Krishna Bhakti Prabodhini. There are other more detailed books which we have also. And for practical guidance, of course we can't learn spiritual life only from books. We need practical guidance from devotees also. So, that's it in brief. What's the treatment? Is Hare Krishna. You gave the answer. Thank you very much. Yes, please. We'll do that now. We'll, we'll chant some more when everyone's ready. So, what is your view uh, on rebirth? Punarjan? What is our view on Punarjan? Often people ask me, what is my view? What is my opinion? And my answer to that is, it doesn't matter in the slightest what my view is. Because I'm a tiny little li living being, and what I think has, doesn't alter the nature of reality. Now, if we take it as a theoretical proposition that there is rebirth, and my view is that, that, that there isn't rebirth, it won't make any difference. Or even if there isn't rebirth, and I do believe in rebirth, still it won't make any difference. Either it is or it isn't. If you believe in it and it, it is not there, it doesn't make it exist. And if it is there and you don't believe in it, it doesn't nullify its existence. Therefore, Bhagavad Gita teaches us spiritual knowledge. It doesn't tell us to blindly believe. But we should understand. So my view is irrelevant. But that there is rebirth as a scientific fact, that should be understood. And again, Krishna teaches in the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, very simple way to understand how we are not the body, but we are just inhabiting a certain body at the present time. Krishna says, Dehinosmin, Krishna says there is a soul within the body, and there is the body. The body changes from boyhood to youth to old age, and the final change is death. That the body is changing and the person remains the same means there's a difference between the person, which is the soul, and the body, which is always changing. The person is unchanging. So yes, Bhagavad Gita scientifically describes how we get body after body after body and how we can stop getting different bodies. My view is, ir is irrelevant. We, 
Just like you may say, well, in my opinion, uh, one plus one equals three. Well, you're welcome to your opinion, but you're a damn fool. One should know what is the fact. One plus one equals two. Right? It's not a matter of opinion. I'll repeat the question. I said that money doesn't bring happiness. So, uh, how do we relate that to a person who doesn't have enough money to eat? How can they have any happiness? And how can they relate to spiritual knowledge? Yeah, a person by whose previous sinful activities they don't have enough money even to eat, they certainly will be uh, much concerned about that and unhappy because of that. And they won't be able to think of spiritual knowledge. All they can think of is their stomach. Actually, uh, the number of people who don't have enough money to eat is not that many because many people who are supposed to be below the poverty line Somehow they still have money for tobacco and alcohol. So, and cell phones. <laughs> so, I feel that this is exaggerated, the number of people. But, um, it's a fact that not having enough to eat is certainly a cause of unhappiness. But it's not a fact that having money is a cause of happiness. Do you follow that? That simply having enough to... Certainly it is distressful not to have enough to eat. But simply having enough to eat is not in and of itself happiness. A person who's hungry feels a kind of happiness, a kind of satisfaction when they get food, but that happiness is temporary because again they'll get hungry. And it's incomplete. It doesn't f satisfy the soul. It satisfies an immediate bodily need. But we see that uh, m the many, many millions of people in the world who do have sufficient to eat are not fully satisfied by any means by having enough to eat. And it's also not true that by having more money people are more happy. Otherwise, People in America should be more happy than people in Bangladesh, but clearly they're not. Happiness is not uh, not simply produced of bodily pleasure. That should be understood. learn how to make our career, learn scientific knowledge, and apply those scientific knowledge to get the financial benefits in the next 25 years, in the age of 25, 50 years. And then we feel we should learn the spiritual knowledge also. So it should happen simultaneously, or it should happen in this manner, or it should happen oppositely. We should start learning spiritual knowledge. At what age should we take up spiritual knowledge? First get our material career fixed, 
and then take up spiritual knowledge? Or should we take up from the beginning? Well, again, it's not my view that counts. We find in Srimad Bhagavatam, Kaumara Acharet Pragyod Dharman Bhagavataneha Durlabham Manusham Janma Tadapya Dhruvam Artatam This is spoken by Prahlad, who was, a, we know, at the very beginning of life, was a great devotee. Have you heard of Prahlad? Okay, because in modern India you don't know. Never heard of some football player in the West, but they may not have heard of Prahlad. So he said that uh, spiritual culture, Bhagavad Dharma, should be taken up from the beginning of life by someone who is Pragya. Pragya means highly intelligent. He says that this human form of life is temporary. You don't know. You say, should we take it up at the age of 55? Well, you know, if you're not 55, there's no guarantee you're going to reach the age of 55. There's no guarantee that any of us are going to be alive for 55 more seconds. Uh, I'm 55 years old. I means this body. Uh, I can say with a good degree of certainty, I won't be in this body for another 55 years. So, uh, we won't be here for long. So the, we should concentrate. One thing is we won't be here for long. Another thing is there's no guarantee when we're going to go. There's no guarantee. You may expect to live to 70, but there's no guarantee. So, uh, we should concentrate on the most important thing from the very beginning. And the most important thing in human life is to develop love of God and not come back again, not get reborn. So that culture should be inculcated and imbibed from the very beginning of life. That makes sense, doesn't it? Otherwise, we're in the situation of Jo Ganga ke paas rete, aise loto kabhi bhi Ganga snanda hi karte. So, you know, we so said later, 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 the whole life goes and then you never do it. Maybe that's something like in the West, so many people are looking at the Indian spirituality and people in India think, ah, What's the use? People come from a long distance to take bath in the Ganga. Those who live at the side of the Ganga, they think, what's the, what's the use? Later, later, maybe later. Familiarity breeds contempt. So take it up now. Don't wait. You're going to have to die. I'm not cursing you, but it's just a fact. We're going to have to die and leave this body. There's no guarantee what the next body will be. Actually, most people in the modern world, in their single day activity that they do, they guarantee themselves birth in lower species. Meat eating, gambling, illicit sex, intoxication, cultivation, calm, crowd, lobe, that all leads us to lower species. 
So better to rectify our life. Better to cultivate Krishna consciousness, spiritual consciousness, at least to save us from falling into the lower species. The modern age means promotion of calm, crowd and low. Just like TV, the TV means calm and cinema, sex, crowd, violence, and lobe means advertisements. Buy this, buy that. Isn't it? TV, that's TV. And Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, Trividham narakasyedam dwaram nashanam admanama kavas krodas tatalobas tasmat etatrayantyajet Krishna says there are three gates to hell which destroy our spiritual consciousness. They are calm, crowd, and low. Therefore, one should give them up. But in the modern age, they're being promoted. In the modern age, if one can eat a lot of meat, uh, have a lot of sex, ride around on motorbikes as fast as you can, and generally make a nuisance of yourself, you're considered to be something really good. And spiritual cultivation, ah, that's stupid. Completely upside down. All wrong. This is called the, uh, in Bhag- from Bhagavad Gita we can understand this is an Asuric civilization. It's a so-called civilization that promotes all the values that are completely opposite to our real self-interest. That is an Asuric civilization. So you're all descended from rishis, great saintly persons. Well, Ravana and Hiranyakashipu, they're also descendants of rishis. So better not be like that. Don't you think the world would be better if everyone seriously cultivated spiritual life, didn't eat meat, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't have illicit sex? By illicit sex that means that within marriage only, people would be, even materially, people would be much happier Nowadays, you see, the uh, boys and girls, they, they get married, but they don't know. They can't trust each other. They, they can't be sure that if the husband's going to cheat, the wife's going to cheat. That wasn't there previously. If we followed religious principles, even materially, we'd be much happier. But the modern age, we are encouraged to be sinful. Girls are encouraged to dress in such a way that incites the lust of men. Chastity of women is something forgotten, as if there's something good in being what in previous ages would have been considered vulgar, that's considered very good nowadays. Why is that? It's just the, by the TV, this demoniac culture, they're making, they're lowering the dignity of the human race. 
all wrong ideas, all the right ideas for human society is in the Vedic literature. How to live proper life. Everything is there. Following this Western culture is the biggest disaster that ever came to India. The whole Western culture, they're promoting it as being so advanced, but it's complete disaster. Maybe you know Newsweek magazine, probably don't know that India Today is is uh, the Indian version of Time and Newsweek. These are very popular magazines which all these so-called intelligent people in the West read. So, about 20 years ago, there, there was an article in Newsweek about uh, American hegemony, cultural, military and political. Hegemony means domination of the world. And they were, they were so proud that now we're the number one country. The Soviet Union collapsed. So we're now, of course, America is going down much faster than it ever came up. But I wrote a comment which they actually published. And uh, I wrote that America should be careful unless it goes down in history as the most intellectually and culturally decrepit civilization in history. They published it. <laughs> They're promoting it's better. Why? Because they want to sell you McDonald's hamburgers and Coca-Cola and useless things like this. It's just that the whole Western civilization is just make on, based on making people work hard, earn money and then spend it. with no spiritual dimension whatsoever. Animalistic. Yeah, anything else? So, we should have some practical spiritual life. You were asking for that. That's chanting Hare Krishna. So, shall we do that? Have a little kirtan? Kirtan means to glorify Krishna by chanting the Mahamantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. It's not all intellectual. It's heart to heart, calling out to Krishna. So, who'd like to lead a Kirtan? One of you can sing. Oh, this uh, glass of water which fell from outer space came into being by chance. Actually, what's the evidence that it's actually water? Did anyone scientifically analyze it? It might have cyanide in it. No, no. Can you prove